Look, surprisingly, a handout. I know you don't expect them. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> All right. Um, it's short. It's uh, from the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Um, this is the, just so you know, well, I, I think maybe some of you want to um, raise concerns about, um, or questions or anxieties about the paper and or the exam, so we can talk about that for a few minutes before we start. But just to tell you what this handout is, is it's the um, Duerem um, translation of the Bible, which is to say it's a Catholic translation. It's the one that was sort of in competition um, with the Protestant translations which were the first um, translations into English. There was in the 17th in the 16th century rather, um, and even before that, but very much in the 16th century, uh, the question of whether the Bible should be translated into um, the languages of the common people um, was a hotly contested one. Um, the Catholic Church was basically against it because the Bible can be very misleading if you don't understand what's going on in it. Um, you might think that um, David and Jonathan are probably a gay couple and the Bible is okay with that, and you probably shouldn't think that. Um, and there are other things that might be confusing, things that might be confusing in um, the sense that they would really make you believe that evil is good, as well as things that are confusing because um, they may make you believe that good is not as is not good. Um, and um, so the question about the translation of the Bible is a question about the difference between um, Protestantism and Catholicism. Um, the Protestant view, one that appears very powerfully in Paradise Lost, for example, is that um, your relationship to God is personalized. Um, it's you and God, and there shouldn't be a church coming between you and God. Um, the Catholic view, and, and um, what you should be doing is reading the word of God in the light of your own conscience. Um, the Catholic view, this is way, this is way simplifying, but um, the pre-Vatican II Catholic view is that um, your conscience isn't a sufficient guide to read the Bible. And what you need is to have um, teachers and interpreters and ministers telling you what's really going on. They will read the Bible. They will understand it. They will analyze it. They will um, um, understand the doctrine and the ideas and the thoughts and the theology that come out of it. And then church teaching is what the members of the church should rely upon. And they have biblical warrant, or so they think, for saying that, um, which is Jesus saying that he is founding his church upon the rock of Peter. Um, Peter in French... Um, is Pierre. Pierre, some of you will know, in French means rock or stone. That's because Peter in Greek, as in our word petrified, means, means stone. To be petrified is to be turned to stone, like the petrified forest. So Jesus makes a little joke there. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, um, thou art Petrus, and upon this rock, 
I found my church. And therefore, um, Peter is the first pope, um, the first figure to, it, to um, interpret the Bible, um, tell others what it means um, out of his own absolute knowledge of this. So in the 16th century, people are being burned at the stake. People are, are escaping from various countries over the question whether the Bible should be translated. It was translated, translated, um, for example, into English several times. Um, the standard translation that we now use in English, it's not the most accurate, except there actually is a website that thinks it is. Um, the King, is the, is the so-called King James Version of the Bible. Um, I think all of you will have heard of it. Um, it is said to be the only book, the only translation of the Bible, or it is said that Shakespeare is mentioned in the King James translation of the Bible. Um, it may or may not be true, but in Psalm 44, which um, was translated right around Shakespeare's 44th birthday, and um, by Lancelot Andrews, who was the head of the King James translators, um, the story goes that Andrews translated Psalm 44 and sent it to Shakespeare, and the 44th word of Psalm 44 <coughs> sent to Shakespeare on his 44th birthday is shake, and the 44th word from the end of Psalm 44, this part is true, the 44th word um, from the end of Psalm 44 is spear, so that um, you would find Shakespeare's name cleverly hidden in this translation of the Bible. Um, it was King James, who was king when Shakespeare wrote King Lear, who, um, who commissioned a new translation of the Bible. And the King James Bible is a magnificent book um, on its own. Um, it's not the most accurate translation. There's stuff that whose meaning um, the translators got wrong or didn't understand or um, um, uh, misread. Um, but as a work of literature worth reading, it is just fantastic. Um, it relies largely on what's called the Geneva Bible, um, which was an earlier version of the Bible and the one Milton used and that was translated into English a few decades earlier in Geneva. Um, in competition with the Geneva Bible, you don't need to know anything about of this on the exam, it's just really interesting. In competition, therefore, with the Geneva Bible was a Catholic translation where the Catholic Church, realizing that they weren't going to be able to stop this new disruption of the, um, of the old way of doing things, um, decided to try to produce their own translation of the Bible, um, which would be, as they felt, less misleading than the Protestant translations. So how you translate has a large effect on what people think the original says. And subtle differences um, make a difference. Subtle differences um, really, really matter. Um, very famously, um, it's not um, the chances of a rich man are not as slim as a camel going through the eye of a needle. That's a famous mistranslation. It's actually the word that's translated as camel is actually rope. So it makes metaphorically more sense that it's going to be hard to get a rope through the eye of a needle, yet it's far more vivid to imagine the impossibility of getting a candle, a, a candle, a camel through the eye of a needle. Um, but some translations um, really make a difference when St. Paul says it is better to marry than to burn. 
um, that tends to be, through the translation of the word burn, tends to seem to be um, an allusion to hell, but actually the word means burn with lust. Better to marry and have legitimate sex than to be celibate if your celibacy um, just fills you with sexual <laughs> desire, which you are unable um, to um, satisfy in any way. So translations matter, and especially in highly metaphorical works like the Bible. So the Douay-Rheim Bible is the um, translation into English of the Bible done by um, done by the Catholic Church rather um, than the Protestant translation. Um, Flannery O'Connor was, or possibly it would be better to say believed herself to be a Catholic. She certainly um, uh, was, was a member of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, nevertheless, it's not so clear that you would call a book like The Violent Barrett Away um, a Catholic novel. Um, she called it that, though, but what, um, whatever it is, it's not normative Catholicism. It's not what you would go to um, if you want to get a sense of what's being taught in um, the normal teaching of the Catholic Church. Uh, not even um, Francis is going as far or in as odd a direction as she is. Is your hand up? No. Okay. Um, so, but before we, we talk a little bit about this, do people have questions either about the exam or the final paper? Seeing none, let's go on. Oh, oh well. Next week. Well, I was wondering, are you going to uh, narrow down some of the perspective books and poetry? Nope. Nope. Whole semester. The syllabus. <laughs> the, okay, so look, the, ex the exam is going to be curved. That's the first thing you need to know. Um, if Flannery O'Connor were grading this exam, you would want to drop the course, and so would I. Um, but she's not, drop she's not grading the exam. Um, it's the school teacher. Just think of me as a nicer version of Raber. Um, so, first of all, it's going to be curved, so if you want to do your classmates a favor, do badly. That would be very self-sacrificing of you because then their grades will go up. Um, but the idea is um, two. There are two ideas behind an exam. One is to get you anxious so that you do um, as much reading as possible so that you will do as well as possible so that you will actually read the stuff over the vacation that's coming up that you may not yet have read. Um, and um, the reason for that is so that you do a lot of reading. Um, then the exam itself, if, um, as sometimes happens, um, questions, you are asked questions that um, get you to think about things that you haven't thought about, that's a good thing also. Um, sometimes people have, um, get, are struck by really good ideas taking exams. There have been a couple of times when an exam question has a year or two later provoked someone to write a senior thesis because suddenly they had this idea um, while they were writing an exam that they otherwise never would have had. Um, and then two years later they write a senior thesis on that <laughs> idea. Um, and then they go to grad school and they get a PhD and then they're miserable because there are no jobs. So an exam can do that for you. Um, exams are good that way or bad that way. Um, 
So the idea is, yeah, be a little bit anxious, um, but don't be too anxious. Remember, one of the thieves was saved, um, but one of the thieves was damned. Um, what author that we've read talks about that? Hmm, maybe that'll be an exam question. <laughs> I mentioned earlier that that comes from Augustine. Um, Augustine says, do not despair, one of the thieves was saved. Do not presume, one of the thieves, do not presume, that is, don't be presumptuous, because one of the thieves was damned. Um, this is the subject for a little conversation between Didi and Gogo at the beginning of Waiting for Godot. Um, only one gospel mentions that one of the thieves was saved, and um, to Didi and Gogo, it seems, to Gogo especially, <laughs> um, it seems absurdly unfair. Yeah. So are they all going to be that specific? No. No. This is just my way of worrying you a little bit so you read more. So it's not, how many people have taken my exams? How hard are they? Definitely doable. Definitely doable. Okay. Do you guys agree? You agree, Lily? I don't even know what grade I got. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what grade I got. Um, uh, love to hear that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so the pie chart part is fun. Good. Just ha have yourself a nice piece of pie. Yeah. Um, when the exam hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's a test now. I don't know. I can't do this. Go on. Yes. Read. Yeah, just read everything. Awake. Be awake when you read. Um, if you already read them, to be like, then page through them. Look, what you haven't read, read. Um, what you have read, page through, um, and try to make connections between things. Um, that is, that's what um, I'm trying to do, um, what Courtney um, is trying to do, and what you should be trying to do as well. Um, just see, um, the syllabus isn't random. Um, the syllabus really does aim to be making connections between a whole wide variety of geographical, um, linguistic, generically um, different sorts of things. Um, so read and read in the context of what you've already read. Yeah. Real question. What do we do first? Study for your exam or write a paper? Yes. Yeah. What is like the format of the exam? Well, you know, I was thinking, um, and I think I'm going to chicken out from this, but I was um, for one, for a bad reason, for a good reason. What I was thinking is it might be all short answers. Um, and um, if that were so, um, you would do badly. But it could be all short answers with um, the lowest possible grade you can get, like on the SATs, being um, well over zero. So... Um, because if you, get, if you give an essay exam, unless someone is just enraged at the entire course and wants to um, be a kind of tar water and say, screw you to everything, it's really, 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 really hard to get below a 50 on an essay exam. If someone asks you, you know, to write about Paradise Regained and you've never read Paradise Regained, you will say, well, the thing about Paradise is it would be really nice to regain it. And in a funny kind of way, it's literature which shows us how to regain Paradise. And then you get half credit. I mean, that's partial credit for you, right? I mean, part of, the, part of what you're supposed to learn in college is to bullshit. Um, I mean, it is. It's, it's everything is bullshit. Um, 
there's also stuff, there's, there's really good bullshit in the world, and we call that literature. Um, but if you learn to do that, you'll get partial credit, um, at least partial credit. So I thought maybe what I would do is just eliminate the middleman and um, not give you essay questions at all, but start you with the 50 you would have gotten, even if you hadn't done any studying whatever and had done none of the reading, and just start from there. So that's one possibility is all short answers um, with the grades compressed between 50 and um, 102 for reasons some of you will know, um, or actually 104 for reasons a few of you will know. Um, the other possibility, though, and this is what I'm going back and forth on, is that people really do get ideas writing essays. Um, that is, uh, when you write an essay at home for a paper that you're going to be graded on as a paper, um, you are sometimes more cautious than you are in an exam where, after all, um, what kind of essay could you possibly be expected to write in an hour um, so you can go wild? And I think going wild is what you should be doing in all your essays. Um, but people never believe that, and even if they believe it, they can't do it, but it's easier to do on an exam. It's easier to make connections that um, you don't have to justify, um, that you don't have to be committed to, um, because you only have an hour. And that's a, that's a reason. It's, it can be a learning experience to have to write essays on exams. So I think I'm probably, it'll probably be, probably be in this format, but I'm not saying for sure that it will be. Um, that it will be short answers, um, three parts, short answers, the first part. Second part would be identify quotations, and what that means is not that you have to get it right, but that you have to explain why you think it is by, about, or whom you think it's by, about, or whom. Um, that is uh, something may sound like it's from the violent Barrett away, but it's actually from Paradise Lost. Um, if you say why you think it's um, from the violent Barrett away, um, and your answer is not because that's what struck me, um, but that um, because it's, a, it's a, in a religious context in which it's very hard to tell the difference um, between the evil and the good characters and in which um, the question of what goes on in the mind somehow seems far more important than the question of what goes on in the world. Um, that applies, um, that might be something true about Satan. Um, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. But it might also be true of Raber um, turning off his hearing aid or of old man Tarwater thinking that Raber is trying to do everything to him within the confines of his Raber's own head. And you would be getting it wrong, but interestingly wrong, and you would get close to full credit for that if you can give um, a justification for your wrong answer that is convincing. It's like on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, where you're supposed to figure out which is the true news story. Um, so you could have two false answers, but if they sound good enough, reasonable enough, convincing enough, we actually have given totally full credit to completely wrong answers. Um, so again, that would mean that you were writing on an extremely high level and um, should consider getting an MFA and then being penniless the rest of your life. Um, but that is, um, those are possibilities. So it would be short answers then, identify the quotation, and then an essay or two. Um, and you would have some choice for all of them, but it would still be a good idea 
to um, read as much as you possibly can um, of the syllabus of this class. So if you've read everything, which I think uh, only a very small number of people here have, um, if you've read everything on the syllabus, that's great. Then just page through it again. Um, if you read alertly everything on the syllabus, as they used to say in the um, in the in moos and muds, which are way before your time, if you were awake and looked alert as you read, um, that would be good. If not, the first thing you should do is read what you haven't read, um, and after that, you should just think um, about what you don't remember and remind yourself. And um, if you really feel like you remember everything and don't need reminding and you really have it down, then just read the Wikipedia entries on the things just so you can see if there's something um, that's, that suddenly um, rings a bell for you. But if you've been really keeping up, I mean, that's the beauty of an English course um, and also the horror. The beauty is if you've been keeping up, you don't actually have to study that much for an exam. The horror is no one keeps up, um, so, which means you have to study for an exam. But there's this vacation. So that's great, right? And it gives you an excuse to get away from your siblings. And that's great, too. So it's all good. Isn't it? Yeah, good. Yay. One point if you all cheer and say it's all good. Yay. All right, half a point. Yeah. Is it true that our exam is in London, Bolivar? <laughs> I don't know, is it? <laughs> that's like, that's, um, like a sign that said, and I'm just confused as to why. Well, there are the dance steps you have to do. I mean, I asked for 11 because of, because of some of the dance steps. So that's fine, right? I don't know why. It's, it's because Mark Hewitt. The answer is because Mark Hewitt. And you, so 11 ballroom, though, because Mark Hewitt. Yeah. So when exactly is the paper due? Because on the syllabus it says, like, what the day to come back, but in, in the email you said. Yeah, it's... When are my papers ever due? Speaking of which, I have a few of the late papers here. Um, they officially do the day we, we the day you come back. You can get them in at the exam, and that's totally fine. So a few people, it's strange, but there are a few people who really, really want deadlines um, and don't want um, the freedom to get their papers in after some certain deadline, because then they're forced to write them. So if you really need a deadline, um, tell me what deadline you need, and I'll give it to you. Um, the last day of class is, is, an, is a reasonable one, um, but you can also take an automatic extension till the exam. OK, is that all right? Yeah. Okay. OK. People sometimes get harassed by too much freedom. Kierkegaard talks about that. Um, how harassing freedom is. Paradise Lost in a funny kind of way is about how harassing freedom is. What? Who said that? The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, um, that freedom is an extreme burden on us. Um, that if we didn't have freedom, this is actually to talk about um, Catholic versus Protestant. Uh, the question of freedom um, is one, although we talked about this a little bit in Paradise Lost, um, one of Milton's heresies. Um, the so-called Armenian heresy, is that he um, believed in free will um, for all his characters. Um, God says that um, both, the rebel, both the angels and the humans were sufficient to have stood, though free to fall. Freely they stood who stood and failed who fell not free, what proof could they otherwise have given of their obedience? So, yeah? And doesn't believe 
It's not clear that he believed God had free will. Um, it would seem that God does not. Um, but he, but the pre, the way he presents God, God not only seems free, he seems just sort of um, uh, tyrannically arbitrary. Um, but that is, for some people, a reason for believing that um, we're seeing a kind of Wizard of Oz God in Paradise Lost and not the true God. Um, but we don't have to go there for this class. Um, the um, it does seem from Milton's theology that God would not have free will, um, but that all other beings in the universe do. Um, you could make an argument for God's free will also, but God's free will also always, God always chooses right. Um, yeah? Um, truth. God, God is like, I mean, the, 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 version of this that you will get in someone like Einstein, um, mentioned by Mrs. Dalloway, um, mentioned in Mrs. Dalloway, the version you'll get in, in something like Einstein is that the laws of the universe are just what God is. Um, God is those laws. Um, and that's a version of pantheism um, in which everything is God and God follows the most beautiful, elegant, and um, astonishing and simple laws of being itself. Um, and that would not be that God is controlled by anything, but God is himself the principle of the elegant, and the aesthetic principle of the elegant control of everything. Um, these are, the, but then that God is highly impersonal. Um, there's a possibility in Paradise Lost um, it's been argued that, that there's a line in Paradise Lost about how God says that in the future, after the last judgment, after the salvation of all who are saved, um, then God shall be all in all, is what God says of the future, which means that God will be everything and everything will be God. Um, and what that means is that God will no longer be in any sense um, the personal God who um, makes comments, laughs, scorns, assigns the son to do certain duties, gets angry, and so on, um, but that God's presence and his absence will be identical. That in a sense, um, this is what um, Beckett is thinking about, and parodying might be the right word, or worrying might be a better word in the figure of Godot. Um, an absent God um, whose absence is itself what is present everywhere, um, so that everything is, um, is, is saturated with the possibility of God, and that possibility is the way God is actual. So there are various ways of describing this, um, some more metaphorical than others, some that are really meaningful to some people, whereas other people think they're really empty. Um, it might be that they're both. That, um, but these are questions that do arise in Paradise Lost, um, but not for the loyal angels. Um, the loyal angels definitely have a very, have the, the most straightforward and literal idea of God. Um, that is, that God is the king of heaven whom people bow to on their knees and um, who gives orders and they obey those orders. Um, it may be that for Adam and Eve, when God disappears from their lives, that may in fact be 
where they get a far deeper idea of God than any of the loyal and possibly than any of the rebel angels have. Um, so those are questions that arise in Milton um, and um, questions that he was certainly himself extremely aware of. Milton had read Gnostic and Kabbalistic texts and he knew the Gnostic idea of God is the abyss, that what God is is the abyss, the absence of everything, um, the emptiness of the heart of everything. Um, present within us as our own knowledge of that abyss. Did Milton believe that? Um, most people would say no. Um, I might say yes. Um, but it's certainly available knowledge to Milton. So you can, I mean, theology will take you anywhere. Um, people who think theology is BS think it's BS because you can say anything, and if you say it with a spiritual enough feeling, um, you think you're saying the truth. Um, people who don't think it's BS don't think it's BS because they feel that it's the truth. Um, and um, that's where things get complicated. The theology he segued of, um, of the violent Barrett away is a very strange one. Um, and um, it's a very peculiar book, as Flannery O'Connor is a very peculiar writer. Um, one thing that we might, uh, one way that we might approach, or there are two, there are two relevant ways in formal or theoretical terms um, that we might approach the violent bear in a way. Um, one is to talk about, and in a way I'm almost hesitant to do this except that it shows the power of um, the concepts even if they seem like just ready-made concepts or easy um, to appeal to concepts, easy to think about concepts. Um, we can talk about the violent Barrett away in terms of what its MacGuffin is. Um, and I'll just say parenthetically, now that I mentioned MacGuffin, that you should be watching, since we will be discussing it on Wednesday, you should for Wednesday watch um, on Latte, um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. Um, what is the MacGuffin of the violent Barrett away? That's one question that we can ask. Um, the other question we can ask about, again, in formal or theoretical terms, is how does free and direct discourse work in the violent Barrett away? Um, I hope you noticed um, or can see right away that those are both issues. One obvious place um, to look at free and direct discourse. Um, is this stuff that people were noticing? I mean, what you're getting is um, an incredibly intense Southern Gothic um, description of the lives of um, three or four very, very strange people. Um, the uh, points of view that we get, what are the points of view that we get in the violent Barrett away? We get um, three main ones, I think. What are they? Yeah, Lily. Well, there's one non-main one, which is the woman at the lodge. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's a non-main one for sure. Yeah, but I think it's a cool one. And then um, there's um, the school teacher, there's um, tar water, mm -hmm. and then kind of, I don't know how to answer this, but the third one. Well, there's old man tar water. But doesn't, don't we only really see him through young tar water's eyes? No, we see him especially towards the beginning, we see him more and more through young Tarwater's eyes, but we see him a bit through his own eyes. 
Um, one of the things that's really interesting about the way she writes sentences is that we'll sometimes get free and direct discourse where we get what a character seems to look like. He seemed to be thinking about X, even though we're getting it from that character's point of view. Um, and it's as though we're suddenly a little bit outside of the character looking at the expression on his face. It's usually his. On his face, even though he's not thinking about the expression on his face, and even though that expression actually gives us a wrong idea of what's going on in his mind. Um, yeah, it would be more than old man Tarwater. It would be um, young Tarwater, and it would be the school teacher Raber. Um, we do get um, the, um, the flu salesman um, who has various ideas, and th that whole um, hitchhiking um, episode, we get his point of view on young Tarwater. Um, and there are a couple of others that we get, but the, but the main ones are the three main characters. Um, and sometimes it's, we get something like young Tar Waters. Maybe this is what you were thinking, Lily. We get young Tar Waters' view of what old Tar Waters' free and direct discourse would be. So it's as though young Tar Water is producing the free and direct discourse. We're getting through free and direct discourse young Tar Waters' um, view of free and direct discourse for old Tar Water. Um, and um, those are those are interesting moments as well. Who's free and who don't we get ever at all through free and direct discourse? Yeah, Bishop. Yeah, um, we absolutely don't and don't get Bishop. Does anyone know whether we could? That is, can you think? Uh, this is not from this class, but from any other class or any other reading you've done. Um, can you think of a novel she might be thinking of? Also, Southern Gothic where we do get the point of view of a character like Bishop? Anyone? No, through the hedges I could see them hitting. Is this familiar to anyone? Sound of the Fury. Yeah, Benji's, chap, Benji's part of the Sound of the Fury um, has to be on O'Connor's mind. Um, when she's writing Bishop. In The Sound and the Fury, um, the first of the four parts of The Sound and the Fury are from the point of view of someone who is very, very close to Bishop. Bishop has to be um, based on Benji. And Benji's just a, an amazing character, but we do get the point of view of a character whom everyone thinks is an idiot, who's unable to speak, and whom everyone thinks is an idiot, and who is an idiot. It's not that he's unable to speak, but deep within him, he's thinking about relativity and um, Mendelian genetics. He's not. Um, but he's a character who is intense, who is real, who is human, the way Bishop is, and who's also an idiot, the way Bishop is, and who is mistreated um, almost as badly as Bishop is mistreated. Yeah. This is kind of off topic, but you reminded me because we started talking about like books we haven't read in this class um, <laughs> for the paper. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you said that you could we could write about anything by any author that we've uh -huh. read, but like that sounds bad and wrong. Like I would love to write about a poem that Emily Dickinson wrote. Yeah. That, like we didn't talk. Yes. About yeah. Go for it. So like that's just as valid as if I write about Invisible Man. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Also, hint, if something is ambiguous on a paper topic and you want to do it, but it's ambiguous, um, you get the benefit of the doubt, so don't ask. 
Um, because if you ask, I might say, oh my god, I certainly didn't mean that. But if, you c but if it's ambiguous, then I can't say that. We can't say that on your grade. Um, so just, just, it's like do, doing taxes. Um, don't ask the government for advice if something's ambiguous. Do it for your own benefit. That's another thing to learn. Not that you'll be paying any taxes if you go into literature. Um, but if you don't, then you should know that. That at least will, this course will serve you at least for that. Um, okay, so there, so free and direct discourse. Um, and part of what is amazing about what she does is, um, and you, uh, depending on your temperament, you might have found this cheating or you might, might have found this amazing. Um, I think it's actually really important, is that she uses certain verbs that you're not supposed to use um, in the way she uses them um, precisely. In particular, she uses words like no um, when she shouldn't be quite using them. That is, even in free and direct discourse, um, if Mrs. Dalloway knows um, that the person standing across the street is her old friend, um, I don't know, Bobby Fisher, who's gone back in time to teach her daughter chess, um, and if she um, knows that Bobby Fisher is the person waving at her from across the street, then we readers have a right to have that be Bobby Fisher who is waving at her across the street. Um, free and direct discourse will use words like, and it's a mark of it, um, something that just in daily life, because remember, free and direct discourse really is um, a daily life sort of thing now brought into a narrative principle within novels. Um, in daily life, you can say that someone knows something, and if you say that they know it, then it has to be true. Um, if I say that um, Mary knows that um, John um, did not buy the present um, that he was supposed to buy, then it had better be true that John didn't buy the present that he was supposed to buy. If I say Mary knows that, then it means that um, he hasn't. If I say Mary was certain that John hadn't bought the present that he was supposed to buy, that doesn't imply that he hasn't brought, bought the present. It just means that Mary believes that she knows that he hasn't bought the present, but her belief may be false. But if I say she knows it, then the belief is true. Um, and that's just basic English, um, that to say that X knows Y implies Y. To say that X is certain of Y does not imply Y. Um, knowledge has a relationship to truth, whereas certainty only has a relationship to possible truth. Yeah, Lily. But she's the whole point of the book is that she's commenting on what people do know. Like the whole, it's commentary on old Tarwater knowing that he's a prophet. That's I think that's why she would employ the word know specifically to question the knowledge that people believe they have. Yes. Um, so old Tarwater knows that he's a prophet, and it turns out he is a prophet. Um, some of what you can do with words like no in the violent bear it away, possibly a whole lot of what you can do with it, but then you have to be really subtle about it, is to see that the things that seem to be false may actually not be false. 
um, the things that seem to be contradicted by what happens later may actually not turn out to be contradictions. Um, that might be worth um, exploration. But there are cases where, for example, Raber, the school teacher, will know what um, Tarwater, what the, what the boy um, is thinking. And we will be told, like the scene, um, the, the one to really concentrate on there is the scene with the fountain in the park, um, where the three of them are in the park, and um, one of many possible instances of baptism in the novel occur with that fountain right in the center of the park. And we first get that scene from Raber's point of view. Um, and in that scene from Raber's point of view, um, he sees what's happening. He sees that Bishop is running off, that um, Tarwater is running off, and then he knows what Tarwater intends to do. What he intends to do is baptize Bishop. Um, then we get the same scene 30 pages later from Tarwater's point of view, and it turns out a whole lot of stuff that Raber knew was wrong, that he had misinterpreted what was in Tarwater's mind. And that misinterpretation, you may feel, but wait a second, we were told he knew this. And then it turns out, no, he thought he knew it, unless you take really seriously Lily's idea that he did know it, he did know, let's say, what is in Tarwater's mind, but Tarwater himself does not know what's in his own mind. And then that might be um, a possible way of reconciling the implication of a word like no with the fact that um, he would have been surprised if he could have actually read Tarwater's mind. He would then say, oh, I was wrong. I thought I knew it, but I didn't. But he might have been wrong to think rather not that he didn't know. Um, I mean, not that he did know, but that he didn't. He might have realized, he might not have realized that he did know when he saw some kind of contradiction there. Um, at any rate, those are things to notice. The MacGuffin, what would the MacGuffin be? if that's at all a helpful question. I think there are a lot of surprises in the novel. Hannah? Would McGuffin be that um, young Tarwater is a prophet? OK, so the MacGuffin, the MacGuffin is always a question, not an answer. So the MacGuffin would be something like, is he a prophet? Um, that is, um, will it turn out that young Tarwater is a prophet or not? Maybe a way to put it is to say the question would be, Will Tarwater um, baptize Bishop or not? That is, is this, or maybe more generally, is this a novel in which, after all, the goal um, for at least the first 80% or 90% of the novel is either to baptize Bishop or to prevent him from being baptized. Um, the MacGuffin is going to be, will he be baptized? What counts as baptism? Um, who will do the baptizing or not? Um, has he been baptized already? That's a question that has um, risen earlier on. Is um, Raber's attempt to drown him, does that count as baptism? 
Um, if so, why? If not, why not? After all, what Raber does is, and I hope that was a shocking surprise to people, Raber tries to drown Bishop, but then Bishop is brought back to life by a man with striped shorts on the beach. Um, so is that, isn't that what baptism is? Um, coming back to life, being born again? Um, has Raber, in a sense, already baptized Bishop? In which case, what does it mean that Tarwater drowns him while pronouncing the words of baptism? Which is the real baptism, if either? Is it not saying the words of baptism, but almost drowning someone and bringing them back to life and then feeling this ferocious love for them that Raber feels? Or is it saying the words of baptism while drowning someone for rills, while drowning someone and killing them absolutely dead? Um, that can be a real question. Just look, since it's so relevant, at the passage from the Douay-Rheim Bible, which is the one that um, O'Connor uses part of this as an epigraph, um, and um, it's um, what she wants you to be thinking of. So Jesus began to see the multitude to say to the multitudes concerning John, that is John the. Yes, good. <laughs> John the Baptist. See how easy the short answers are? <laughs> what went you out into the desert to see, he asks the multitude. A reed shaken with the wind? But what went you out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? How is that relevant, by the way? A man clothed in soft garments? Who doesn't want to be wearing soft garments? Young tar water. What went you out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Behold, they that are clothed in soft garments are in the houses of kings. But what went you out to see? A prophet? Yea, that's what you went out to see. I tell you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my angel before thy face who shall prepare thy way before thee. So that's from Malachi in the Old Testament. Amen, I say to you, there hath not risen among them that are born of women, a greater than John the Baptist. So he is the greatest figure, Jesus says, ever born of a woman. Yet he that is the lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John the Baptist, the greatest human who ever lived, says Jesus, is lesser than the least person in the kingdom of heaven. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent bear it away. Now, that's a very confusing and, and long-interpreted line in the Bible. Um, but this is not against that violence. It feels like saying that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent bear it away means that the violent are the evil. But what Jesus is saying is, no, the violent are the good. This is the New Testament version of jihad that is, of using violence against yourself to prevent yourself from settling into selfishness. It's violence directed against your own lesser desires. So the violent bear it away means those who get any part of heaven do it because they are violent in their desire for heaven. 
that would be the description of tar water. But it is violence. It's not metaphorical violence, it's real violence. And, but bearing it away is a good thing. It's a highly ambivalent and ambiguous moment. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, he is Elias that is to come. So John is the prophetic Elijah or Elias. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. How does that appear in the novel? He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Yeah. Anyone? Yes, so, and he can turn out the world whenever he wants by turning off his hearing aid. But whereunto shall I esteem this generation to be like? It is like to children sitting in the marketplace who crying to their companions say, we have piped to you and you have not danced, we have lamented and you have not mourned. That is their complaining, this generation, that those, who, that those aren't happy when the marketplace say they should be happy, says they should be happy, or sad when the children in the marketplace say they should be sad. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he hath a devil. So who is that about? Can't eat, can't drink, has the devil with him. The one time he does eat, he pukes into the lake. His friend or his mentor or his companion with violet eyes. Who is that? The, yeah, the companion or mentor or friend is the devil. Who is it who can't eat or drink much as he tries to? Young Tarwater, unable to eat or drink. Um, the one time he does eat, he can't hold it down. It's as though his hunger is filling his belly and leaving no room for food. Then the Son of Man, that is Jesus himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold a man that is a glutton and a wine drinker, a friend of publicans and sinners, and wisdom is justified by her children. Then began he, that is Jesus, to upbraid the cities wherein were done the most of his miracles for that they had not done penance. Remember that the end of the violent bear it away is the description of all the sleepers in the city. Okay, let's stop there. Um, the, the violent bear it away is very, very strange. Flannery O'Connor is very, very strange. She's really intense. And part of the point is if you find this troubling, you should. Um, a little point, but it's there. Um, something worth doing research on. Um, okay, three papers here. Lily, I have yours. Hannah, I have yours. And Sasha.